terribly fitting where we're going to find ourselves this morning is we're going to look at the hope of the resurrection. And, and I hope for Gavin and his family that, that that reminder for them rings true, is that this was just a short time, but there is a time coming when we will all be together forever, where family will be reunited and where we will no longer have bodies that grow old and that are frail and that are hurt, but that we can be with Christ in eternity the way in which he designed us to be in the first place. And so I hope that as we study this text this morning that we all leave with that sense of of resurrection hope, knowing that because Christ rose from the dead, we will also and we will join him. Now that all being said, is, is this is going to take us a few weeks to get through. So we're just going to do the first 11 verses this morning. Uh, for those of you who uh, are joining us that you haven't kind of been part of this, we've been going through 1 Corinthians. Uh, just We're going to near one year, uh, end of December. I know that sounds like that's far away, but it's really not. Uh, December is going to be here pretty quickly. Uh, we had a little break for the summer, but we've been working our way through 1 Corinthians and dealing with some of the various issues that that Paul was trying to correct in Corinth, and, and as a byproduct, there are many of those same issues that we struggle with. Uh, the first issue being pride that Paul deals with at length and in various ways, and as, as Ernie mentioned, is we keep saying this at our board meetings as we've been leading up to uh, today's AGM, is when we get together and we pray, we ask, God, would your will be shown to us? Because we are not, we think we're smart, but we desperately need help. We desperately need direction and guidance from the Father. And so that, that is the continuing prayer of Paul here going, you guys, if you've lost sight of it and you, and you kind of, you think you're so much more intelligent and so much more spiritual than you actually are. And so you need to dive back into Scripture. And, and then he deals with various issues, the last of which we dealt with was spiritual giftings, how those work within the context of the local body and how God has gifted and equipped you for the edification of the believers. And then we come to this issue, and it seems a little bit like a, like a strange shift all of a sudden to deal with the resurrection, because if you've grown up in, in an evangelical church, by and large, the resurrection's probably just a foregone conclusion to you. It's not something that you talk about or think about a lot. But in Corinth, remember this is, a, this is a, one of the most metropolitan cities in the world with different people from different places, different cultures, different beliefs. And they've all gathered together here, and so some... In the church, they've accepted Christ in theory, but there's a lot of the influence of the world still at play in their hearts and in their minds. They're working towards a more biblical worldview, and yet they find themselves trying to let go of the worldly worldview. And I think that's exactly where we find ourselves in today's world, is more information is available to you than ever has been before. Not all of it good, and we know that. But it's there. And so we start to think that in and of ourselves, we, we have everything that we could possibly need, but the truth is so, so far from that. And so we get to this place where the Corinthians, many of them are going, there's no resurrection. Like, Jesus rose from the dead. Okay, but, but our bodies aren't going to rise again. And we're going to get there in a couple of weeks. Verse 12 Next week, basically, Paul says this, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? That's the thing he's trying to deal with. How can some of you say that? How? His, his big point is simply this. The resurrection is not some small part of theology. It is central to the very gospel message. 
This is not an area that we can agree to disagree on, which there are plenty of areas where we can do that. And and depending on how we interpret certain things in Scripture, we might land in a certain place, and we might be right or we might be wrong, but it's, it's something we can just move on with together. But this is central. This is something that Paul is so serious that this is actually the second longest chapter in the New Testament, all dealing with just this one issue. So let's read these verses uh, together. Verses 1 to 11 of chapter 15 says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was, sorry, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Paul wants to deal with something that that I think is very important for all of us as well, is when we mature in our faith and when we you know, read more scripture and attend more Bible studies, it can be very easy to start thinking, man, let's get more and more complex. Let's try and understand more and more deep truths of scripture. And sometimes we do that at the expense of the simplicity and the beauty of the gospel. In fact, most of the very, very strange teachings that I find that come in, creep into our churches today are simply because of this, because we don't know the gospel. Because if we knew the gospel, that strange teaching that came in, we would spot it from a mile away. But it sounds good, it sounds logical, and we forget the very foundation from which we were founded. That was redundant, but you know what I mean. Jerry Bridges writes, in one of his books, and I know some of you have, have heard me say this before, but it's so central. He says, preach the gospel to yourself every day. Every day we need to be reminded. Because when I wake up in the morning, it becomes very easy. Uh, it can be easy to do a couple of things. One, it can be very easy to just get on with my normal day. Oh, I have tasks to accomplish. I have things to do. I have errands to run. And I can forget that God has called me for purpose and meaning. God has called you for purpose and meaning. And it's not just to go to your work and accomplish the things that are in front of you that day. It's to glorify him in all that you do. And how can you glorify God if you're not being intentional in that? The other thing that can happen is we can start to dichotomize regular life from spiritual life. And and we can be, you know, spiritual at church and at Bible study and these things. But then in our business practices or, or with our friends or something, it's like we're two different people. But if we remind ourselves of the gospel over and over and over, if we remind ourselves of the beauty and yet the tragedy of the cross, the fact that, that God had to send his son to the cross to pay the penalty for my sins because I was so wretched, so wicked. If I start to see that context over and over, it's not a sense of beating me down because when I see how wretched I am, I see how beautiful and how good and how wonderful Jesus is. And I get more thankful 
And I'm filled up with more encouragement to know that God loves me and God wants to use me. And we actually see in, the, in these verses here at the end, Paul struggling with that in his life. Do not lose sight of the gospel. Paul says right here at the beginning, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached. But he also says this, it is where you stand. This is your foundation, and only on this foundation are you saved. Notice he's not, he's not claiming they've lost everything and they don't follow Jesus anymore. This is a warning. This is a warning back to the truth of the simplicity of that Jesus died on the cross, that he was raised from the dead, and in that is your hope, and don't move beyond that. But he does say some interesting things here in these verses that I do want to look at. Because he says this, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So there's kind of some interesting things at work there. And so when you read it, maybe you're thinking, in which you are being saved. Well, I thought salvation was this this moment where you confess Jesus Christ as Lord and then you become saved. What does it mean to being saved? So we'll deal with that. The other thing that I want to look at is if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, salvation seems to be conditional and yet we don't like that. We think of God as unconditionally loving, which he is. But salvation is not unconditional. Salvation has conditions to it that we persevere, that we stay committed to Christ. And then this last little bit of, unless you believed in vain, we'll deal with that in a moment. But this first idea of being saved, it's actually not as complicated as we think. This is just one of those things that in the Greek, it probably makes a little bit more sense than to us. Or maybe not as much in the Greek language, but in the culture of that time, they understood that salvation is both a here and now moment when you confess Christ as Lord, but also the process of becoming more like Jesus as you are being saved. In some senses, if you have confessed Jesus as Christ, then you are saved. Your salvation is secure. It's held in the Father's hands. But he is not finished with you. He is at work in you to mature you and to to change you. Um, There are many different expressions that you could say, but one of them is is God loves you um, despite who you are, but he's not done with you. Right? Or God loves you just the way that you are, but he's not satisfied with leaving you that way. Whatever expression you want to give yourself. is That's the truth of what scripture teaches us, is come to Christ, but then he's got purpose and meaning for every day of your life until he calls you home. Whether that's many or whether that's few. And there's no greater news than that. Otherwise, if it was simply just this idea of becoming saved, then, then as soon as we prayed a prayer of salvation, we would then just go to heaven. But God goes, no, I actually have purpose for you. You were going to reach out to the world in which you find yourselves and you were going to show them my love and my grace, that they're going to understand my forgiveness. And so as you do all these things, you are being saved. Leon Morris explains it well. He writes it this way. If people profess to believe the gospel but have not given due consideration to what what that implies and what it demands, they don't really trust Christ. Their belief is groundless and empty. They lack saving faith. Saving faith is this trust that I, even though I don't know what's happening, and Ernie prayed it well, is we don't understand these, these things. When, when your child dies of cancer, how, how do you process that? There's no easy answers for any of those things. 
And so we trust in spite of all of our emotions screaming, saying, why? We trust because we go back to Scripture and are reminded that God is in control, that he has purpose in everything that happens, regardless of whether it's the way we think it should happen or not. And so as we mature, however many days we have, we are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, this is all through Scripture. Is it's not, salvation is not some fire insurance. Where you go, Jesus, I don't want to go to hell. Please forgive me, but I'm going to go live like I should be in hell. It's not the way it should be. This should be, Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. And because of your sacrifice, your love and your grace, the forgiveness that you've poured out to me, I want to follow after you because nothing else will satisfy. And yes, we make mistakes. And yes, we have ups and downs in that spiritual journey. And it's not just one simple linear movement towards Christ. There are are valleys and, and there are moments of frustration and doubt and confusion. That's reality. But all at the same time, recognizing that, God, I'm confused and I'm hurt and I don't understand what's going on. But I know that the world has nothing to offer me. And so I'll stay whole. I'll hold steadfast to you despite my circumstances. That's what Paul is saying. This, And then he has this, unless you believed in vain, which is kind of this, he's not saying that you can lose your salvation, that you believed something in vain. What he's saying is, is you're claiming to believe that which you don't actually believe. And how much of that do we see in this world? And I use silly examples all the time, right? But you can use chocolate as that example, right? Is I believe that chocolate is not great for me. But do I really? Because I eat it a lot. Right? Silly little things all over the places. We say something, but our actions mean something else. And that shows that we, aren't, we don't have conviction over that belief. It's just something maybe, you know, when you're a kid and you grow up and, and it's like, if you don't clean up before bedtime, this is going to happen. And what do you do the first time as a kid? You're like, is it really going to happen? Let's test this. Let's see the boundaries. Let's see how far I can push those things. This is just what we do in our human nature. And so what Paul is trying to say here is do not believe something in vain in the sense of claiming you believe it, but don't actually go and explore who Jesus is. And when you find him, you will trust him. That doesn't mean life will be easy and simple. And in fact, Jesus promises hardship and difficulty in a life of following him, but yet one of purpose and meaning and value and ultimately salvation. These next verses, Paul says he passed on the gospel, which was of first importance. But notice what he says here, because this is really interesting. For, uh, sorry, Christ died for our sins. What does it say after that? In accordance with the scriptures. In other words, This is part of God's plan. From way back, from the beginning of time, God planned that Christ would die for our sins. This was his plan for salvation, the only way for forgiveness of sins, according to Scripture. He was buried and that he was raised on the third day. What does it say again? In accordance with the Scriptures. It might sound as you read it like it's redundant, but Paul's getting to something here that we see in the rest of the whole chapter is salvation came through the blood of Jesus on the cross. And you don't deny that, you accept that, but you do deny the resurrection even though it is prophesied in the Old Testament according to the scriptures that he would rise after three days. 
This is essential part of the gospel. This is not something that you tag along afterwards. This is the whole picture of it, and this is what Scripture promised to us. It was written for us, and so you can't say there is no resurrection when all the way back in many different prophetic promises back in the Old Testament, it says he will rise again. And then he says, if, if, as if that isn't enough, then he appeared to Cephas, that's, that's just Peter, and he appeared to Peter, and then he appeared to 12, uh, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. couple things. He's basically saying this. It's not as though Jesus just kept his, his rising from the dead a secret. It was this publicly broadcasted thing to prove I am who I said I am. He does that, and many people, and and so Paul says, look, this isn't just my word. You can go talk to all these people who saw it. If you don't believe me who saw it, you can go talk to these other people. But then he also has this one little funny thing. Though some have fallen asleep. It's a strange way to talk about someone who has died, isn't it? Unless you hold true to the fact that death is not the end, and that you will rise again. Then death is just another passage, and so they have fallen asleep, but they will come back to us again. And so Paul's using this vernacular already to try and prepare for what's coming over in the following chapters. He says, then he appeared to James. And just a quick side note in case you're like, I thought James was a disciple. There is another James, right? The James who wrote the book of James. And this is really interesting. Why does Paul use him as an example? Well, he did hold a kind of a place of prominence in the church in Jerusalem, but I don't think that's why. I think the reason he says this is James is well known because he was the brother of Jesus. And he was the brother of Jesus who did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah until he rose again. So when you read through the book of James, when you read through the book of Mark, especially you see several times where Jesus' family goes to talk to him and, and, and you just see very clearly, they think he's crazy. He's claiming to be the Messiah. He's crazy. And they do not believe. They're ashamed of him. They think that Jesus is bringing shame to their family name, all these things. And then the resurrection happens and James goes, he was who he said he was. James turns his life around so completely that he becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem of the movement where he then does any and everything possible to proclaim the name of Jesus whom he denied his whole adult life until that moment. Paul is showing us here the resurrection has serious implications. Then he says this, and this is kind of a tough one. Verse 8, it says, Last of all as to one untimely born, he also or he appeared also to me. This is a tricky one because this, this untimely born, depending on your English translation, some might say abnormally born. It's a tricky one to translate because this is the only time this Greek word appears in the entire New Testament. And so when we see something like that, it's probably, okay, we've got to slow down and think, what, what is happening here for us? In Richard Pratt's commentary, he spends a great deal of time here, and he shows us two different things. First of all, Paul is saying that he was the last one to see the risen Jesus. Why is that significant? Well, it's terribly significant for this reason. In the book of Acts, it says that one of the requirements of being an apostle was to personally see the risen Jesus. 
And we live in a time now where many are coming forward claiming to be apostles and have the same authority that Scripture does, the same way the, the apostles did in the New Testament. Except they haven't seen, personally, the risen Jesus. And so they're going against what Scripture says. And, and so we should be reminded of that. And, and I hold no special authority. The words that I speak to you mean nothing if Christ isn't in them. But the words that we read and hear every morning, they are true and they are right and they convict and they show us who God is. And so I have no authority as an apostle and, and Pratt spends a great deal of time to show that. When Paul was on the road to Damascus, he came to this sight of Jesus so spectacular that he became blind for a time. The second thing is this that Pratt mentions is this untimely born. And he says this, Paul compared himself to an untimely born child, indicating some degree of inferiority to those who had lived with Jesus during his earthly ministry. All that's really saying, and, and Paul says it here, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of Christ is all these other people were brought alongside that were disciples of Jesus, were called out by Jesus. And here he was throwing in prison and signing the death warrants of these people who followed after Jesus. And it is not lost on him the significant change that Jesus made in his life. And that is essential for us to know. Especially for those of us who perhaps have grown up in the church and made a profession of faith as a young child. It can be just, you, you know no other. You're just a Christian. And while, praise the Lord if you have come to faith early on and you have seen who Jesus is, that doesn't mean that God didn't radically transform you in that moment of salvation. Paul acknowledges that he sees that I am not even worthy to be called an apostle of Jesus. And you see this in the book of Acts, him struggling with what he's done what he's done to others in the name of opposing Jesus. But he shows so beautifully here that there's this, this struggle that he has in himself because of the persecution for the church. But, verse 10, this is a huge, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I am what I am. God has taken us, broken and unworthy people, and he has turned us into something that the scriptures call his masterpiece. He has created and formed us and called us and gifted us for his glory. And if that doesn't blow our minds, then what can possibly? I do not deserve any bit of the forgiveness or the grace that I'm given. And maybe I can look at this and go, well, I, was, I wasn't Paul. I wasn't sending people off to prison. But I think the simple reality is all I'm doing is I'm, I'm saying that sin isn't that serious. Tim Keller once wrote it this way. The gospel is simply this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. What a beautiful statement that is. As Paul is struggling with this. And yet, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Paul was not going to take credit for anything because he knew all of it was a gift of grace because of what God had done for him. 
how much do we need to learn that same thing? We love to take credit for things. Maybe I'll speak for myself. I love to take credit for things. And I'll tell you, I promise you, if Wednesday at 2 o'clock when hockey is over, I show up at home, I promise if I play good, Shayla will find out real quick. Right? That's, that's what we do. We want credit for the things that we did good because we feel that sense of pride well up within us. The only problem is that pride leads to what? Pride leads to the fall. And so fast when we puff ourselves up and we put ourselves on some pedestal do we come crashing down in the realization. It's probably good that Shayla doesn't come to see those games that I say I play really good because other people probably disagree. And sometimes we need, I'm not saying she does this, but sometimes we need to have people that are willing to call us on things. Not out of a sense of arrogance, but out of a realization of you are not as awesome as you think you are. Christ is so much greater. Praise be to God for his grace in your life. But it's because of him, not because of you. God chose you not because of your amazing, wonderful personality or your amazing talents or the gifts that you have. No, God called you and then he equipped you that way for him, not for you. Paul understands that because of the radical transformation that he went through. And so he's already making this kind of a statement. Is resurrection already sort of happened? Is that I was this, I am now this. In the following letter that Paul writes to the Corinthians, we have this verse that we say all the time, right? I am a new creation. The old is gone. I'm not who I once was. Christ has set me free. He has made me something else. And so Paul is working so hard to show them that they would understand that the resurrection is central. It is part of the gospel because without it, sin was paid for, yes, but there's no hope for a meaningful life with him. And Paul's going to talk all kinds of different ways about this. And, and so we'll, we'll deal with this more as we go. But I just want to finish by saying this and as, as we kind of go into our annual meeting in, in a few minutes especially with the news of, of Gavin, is that we remind ourselves that the resurrection is a central part of the gospel. That we will rise again to be with Jesus. And you may wonder all kinds of questions, and, and perhaps you have as a kid growing up, is what will I look like and will I recognize other people? We'll answer all those questions as we go. But let's dwell in the truth and the simplicity that I will be with Christ for forever. And those who have gone before me that I have grieved over the loss of, if they love Jesus, Scripture promises that we will see each other again. What a wonderful hope that is for us, even in the midst of a time of grieving and suffering. It's not the end. It's only see you in a little while. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for the cross that you died, on the sins, you died on the cross for our sins, that we might be forgiven. But the story of the gospel doesn't end there, but three days later, you rose again, conquering the grave and showing us that death has no hold on us any longer. Praise the Lord for that. May we live in the truth of that. And, and God, we pray for Gavin and his family. God, we pray that they would rest in this truth that they will be reunited again. 
And God, would you comfort them to know that he no longer suffers? God, we thank you for Gavin's steadfast love in you. And if we're honest, amidst probably some of the more difficult situations than any of us could ever walk through. So we thank you for his example of strength and perseverance in the midst. God, it might be easy for us to see that and to know just how far-reaching that little young life was and how it pointed to Jesus. But God, for the family who just wishes that he was still here, we pray that they would receive comfort. That as it says in scripture, that the peace that passes all understanding would guard their hearts. God, for each one of us here today who are going through our various challenges and our various difficulties, God, may we trust in you even when we don't see the answers, even when we're confused and we we just don't know what's happening. Remind us that the world has nothing to offer us, and may we cling even more tightly to you in that moment. God, we are so grateful that we will get to see everyone who has confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior one day in heaven together. What a celebration that will be. We eagerly look forward to that day. We love you. Amen.